evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Um, thank you very much uh, for joining the far more select gathering here this week than, um, than was present last week uh, with what we call a sort of respectable county championship uh, kind, um, kind, of, kind of crowd. Um, and um, perhaps, the answer, perhaps, perhaps the answer for county cricket is an offer of free wine, because I can half bring them in. Um, We got any lights? Yes, I can't actually see the script, <laughs> but I was sort of hoping to wing it. That's lovely. <laughs> Thank you. Um, the first known depiction of sport is a votive tablet from Mesopotamia, dated circa 3000 BC, 5,000 years ago. Uh, and today I intend to have a romp through history showing how sport and those who tell its story developed together up to the beginnings of the last but one big medium, i.e. television. So that's 5,000 years minus the last 60, which we'll come to later, from BC to the BBC. To begin at the very beginning, what's the point of sport? This has been a subject of intense and wide-ranging debate involving, oh, at least half a dozen academics. Uh, anyone who has ever seen a, a field of gambling lambs or a litter of puppies can see that playfulness is in some way innate. But why? One group believes that sport is essentially a survival technique, learning how to run from a predator or to throw a spear to kill. However, the cultural historian Johann Heisinger saw it differently. If that was nature's intention, he said, play would have had some kind of biological function. For him, it's there for its own sake. Fun. But when you look at the origins of organised sport, another element comes in. There's extraordinary evidence of a religious connection. Across the world, the rituals of sport were linked to the rituals of sacrifice. The Huron Indians played lacrosse and the ancient Sudanese staged wrestling matches, in both cases to placate the deities and ensure a good crop. Hill tribes in Assam had tug-of-war contests to expel demons and Eskimos played a cup and ball game to catch the sun in spring. And there's something very attractive about this idea because we can see it in ourselves. Anyone who has ever been to the gym or had a morning jog will be aware of the sense of piety and purification that induces. Your body is a temple, 1 Corinthians. In my own case, my body is more like the temple before the expulsion of the money changers uh, or after Samson had brought the whole thing down on his head. Uh, that was particularly true last Wednesday morning after serious incidents in the Randolph Hotel. Uh, and uh, various bottles of wine uh, after, uh, uh, after last week's dinner. The funny thing is, is that while on the one hand sport extends far beyond humanity, it can also be seen as culturally specific. Heisinger said he could find no other language that had a precise translation for the English word fun. While the classicist David Sansone noted that, sport, that the word sport is almost exactly the same in a host of unrelated languages, 
from Hungarian to Japanese, supotsu, suggesting it was derived from English. So sport was Britain's gift to the world, the gift that goes on giving because we usually let them beat us. Andy? But it didn't start in Britain. The first story we have of formal sporting contests comes from about 1000 BC. The account of the games played after the funeral of Patroclus from the 23rd book of the Iliad, significantly after the sacrifices to the gods. And the chariot races that Homer describes, that the, one cha- the chariot race that Homer describes in the Iliad, resounds down the ages as a representation of everything we perceive in modern sport. A brief commentary on the race. The two main protagonists, Eumelus and Diomedes, joint favourites with the Athenian bookmakers, set off together. Eumelus was first to the turning point, a hollow tree, but then he crashed and was hurt. Diomedes did not stop to see if he was all right. Behind them, Antilochus was threatening to kill his horses if they didn't win. The winner was Diomedes, his prize, a young woman prisoner and a Trojan cauldron. The bad-tempered Antilochus came second, ahead of Menelaus and Meriones. Last of all was Eumelus, he of the crashed chariot, returning on foot and not happy. Achilles, as umpire, felt sorry for him and offered him the second prize, a mare in foal. Not surprisingly, this infuriated Antilochus, the would-be horse-killer, even more because he thought that price was his. So Achilles backed down. Then Menelaus accused Antilochus of blocking him at the turning point and said he should have come second. Furious arguments broke out in the stands. And this was the cream of Mycenaean society, not the riffraff. It took some time for order to be restored so the rest of the sports could go on. Boxing, wrestling, spear fighting, discus throwing, the running. In the running race, fleet Ajax against cunning Ulysses as Homer billed them like heavyweight fighters. Ulysses got close but couldn't get past. He then prayed to Minerva whereupon Ajax slipped on some cow dung that miraculously appeared in his path, and Ulysses won. Ajax was now furious and complained about the goddess playing favourites. It's got the lot. Cheating, lust, hooliganism, match-fixing, bad sportsmanship, greed, cruelty, weak refereeing, and more than that, the sacrifices were obscenely ostentatious. In Sanson's words, libations of oil, honey and wine holocausts of sheep and cattle, slaughter of horses and dogs, human sacrifice. The common denominator, he says, was expenditure, waste, squandering. Thus we have the first hint of what was to come in the FA Premier League. (laughs) Everything except Homer telling us that the wretched female Minerva knew nothing about sport. (laughs) And you can add to the list of horrors, dishonest journalism. Gods and cow dung, indeed. You couldn't make it up, except that Homer quite clearly did. The first sports writer and the biggest liar of us all. As the great sports writer's cliche has it, even Homer nods. But 
The story has come down to us because someone wrote it, and we have the first firm connection between sport and the media. After that, the trail goes very cold. We do know that poets like Pindar honoured the heroes of the ancient Panhellenic Games, though most of his work is lost. In Rome, there were, first, there were fierce allegiances attached to rival chariot racing stables. Blues, greens, reds, whites, golds and purples. Come on, you blues, I say. Meanwhile, across the world, another civilization was playing something remarkably akin to football. And this poem by Li Yu survives from China circa 100 AD. A round ball and a square goal suggest the shape of the yin and the yang. The ball is like a full moon, and the two teams stand opposed. Captains are appointed and take their place. In the game, make no allowance for relationship, and let there be no partiality. Determination and coolness are essential, and there must not be the slightest irritation for failure. Such is the game. Let the principles apply to life. And that too is the football we know and love. But the world became a darker place, uh, and much less recorded. In England, the nobles hunted, of course, but there was little that could be recognised as organised sport until the time of Edward I, when the medieval tournament ceased being just a militaristic uh, melee and began to feature the chivalric joust. The Tudor aristocracy had bowling greens and even tennis courts. That's real tennis courts, the sport of kings, not lawn tennis. And in 1502, James IV of Scotland bought a set of golf clubs. The lower orders, meanwhile, were staging their own form of melee. The mass football matches, with local rules or no rules at all, that can still be seen in some corners of the country, notably at Shrovetide, this was also a good time of year for blood sports like cockfighting. Cocking, we are told, became popular even in schools. There was a brief counterblast from the Proto-Puritans, although they continued to indulge public taste with that perennial favourite, a solid fixture list of public hangings. And the balance swung back under Charles II when formalised horse racing arrived, and then in the 18th century cricket and prize fighting, plus the beginnings of a sporting press, specifically at that stage the Sunday papers, which even then had begun to exhibit that mix of lubriciousness and censoriousness that has not disappeared from the news of the world even now. And I would draw your attention, if you could bear it, to last Sunday's News of the World report on the former News International employees. Uh, Andy Gray and Richard Keyes. The, the in the 18th century, it was summed up by the poet vicar George Crabb in a verse about the very first Sunday paper, The Monitor. So moral essays on his front appear, but all is carnal business in the rear. By the 1820s, there was genuine sports journalism led by the roistering Pierce Egan, chronicler and celebrant of bare-knuckle fighting. But sport, as we know it, required communication in the broader sense. It needed proper transport so teams could travel. 
That came with the railways after 1830. Even to arrange a fixture, you needed an efficient postal service, which came with the penny post after 1840. To get an audience, it needed a means of transmitting results uh, to the public, which emerged with the electric telegraph in the 1860s. It needed an affordable medium, which came with cheap newsprint, and the abolition of stamp duty on papers, which made penny papers possible and so affordable to the masses. To build an audience, sport needed a literate working class, which came from the Education Act of 1870, and it needed time off, which came with the spread of the Saturday half-day. Society at that point was becoming more squeamish, a tendency encouraged by the church in alliance with bodies like the RSPCA. Cockfighting, dogfighting, bear, bull and badger-baiting became illegal in 1835, although the blood sports associated with the upper class, curiously, did not. And the extent to which the illegal sports had gone away has always remained a little murky. Some years back, I reported on a legal cockfight in the French West Indian island of Martinique, and I met the local grandee who was the chief patron of the event. I said I was a little bit surprised by his presence. I think in your country, he said, higher people than me fight cocks. But there were still regular public hangings, with the crowds now brought in on special excursion trains, and there was football. The authorities had long been trying to suppress the local melees, which were associated with desecration of the Sabbath, public disorder, and political dissent. But in the lovely phrase of one historian, Douglas A. Reed, football was like a subterranean stream reappearing wherever the crust of repression was weakened. In the 19th century, it not merely reappeared, but mingled with a different stream, the sport that was developing within the public schools, on the playing fields of not just Eton, but Rugby, Marlborough, Uppingham, and so on. Two facts are incontrovertible. Rugby football was not invented when a boy called Webb Ellis picked up the ball and ran with it. And his headmaster at rugby, Dr Arnold, was not the guiding force behind the muscular Christianity that underlay public school sport. He couldn't care less about sport. The next generation, however, of headmasters did care. And they saw sport as a means of socialising their feral charges and of inculcating the discipline and teamwork that would sustain the empire. Some of them explicitly rejected the academic virtues. In words attributed to Cotterill, a headmaster, a housemaster at Fetters, cleverness, what a name. Good God, what a name. Cleverness neither makes nor keeps man nor nation. There was something else the masters didn't like. According to the historian Catherine Mullin, and this is the promised bit, the masturbation panic was so ubiquitous that there was a strong emphasis against solitude, against privacy, and against individualism. All sorts of team sports, football in particular, were brought in as an antidote. I did tell you that cocking was popular in schools. (laughs) This may be an extreme interpretation, but there's no doubt that the manly virtues of muscular Christianity excluded and denied sex. 
And that Victorian obsession was an important link in the chain that created modern sport. But sport still had um, other meanings. I came, I came across um, an 1887 book called Sport in Bengal. Subtitled, A Plain, Unvarnished Record of 40 Years' Life and Experience Among Savage Beasts and More Savage Men. The chapter headings included wild hog hunting, tiger shooting, spearing buffalo on horseback, beating out bears from dens, shooting rhinoceros on foot, and a desperate set two with a panther. Uh, at home, uh, there was also still an audience for uh, rumbustuous sports, which was enhanced by the combination of railways and newspapers. In 1860, Tom Sayers and the American boy Heenan squared off for the first great championship fight since Pierce Egan's heyday, and perhaps the first great international sporting contest because both men wore their national colours round their waist. It was quasi-legal, promoted by the press, opposed by the authorities, and rescued by the South Eastern Railway, which agreed to run special trains and stop them between stations in Kent to thwart the police. Lord Palmerston was rumoured to be present. Queen Victoria was said to be asking for news. Train fare, three guineas, six times a normal fare, two trains, 63 carriages, 42 rounds, a draw. Barbarous, according to a visiting French journalist. Both men fated as heroes. Sayers, in particular, left a pathetic wreck. Both combatants dead before they were 40. That was a throwback. Later that decade, boxing would be sanitised by the Queensbury rules, and soon manliness was seen to reside, above all, in team games. Uh, but what game? Each public school played its own form of football, so it was left to a university to codify some rules. Not this one, the other one. At first, the argument was not about handling the ball, which, was, which happened everywhere, but about hacking, slicing opponents off at the shins. But in 1862, the old boys of Harrow and Eton played an 11-side match at Cambridge that allowed neither hacking nor handling. And a meeting soon followed to set up an association that would play football under these rules. One representative at the meeting held out. F.W. Campbell of Blackheath thought hacking was part of the true public school spirit. If you do away with it, you will do away with all the courage and pluck of the game. And I will be bound to bring over a lot of Frenchmen who could beat you with a week's practice. And so, Blackheath became a famous rugby club. That would be the minority version of the game in Britain as a whole, but the main one among public schools. They favoured it because, as Campbell said, it forged the boys' strength, inculcated team spirit, tired them out, and thus, though this was never said out loud, perhaps to stop them doing other things after lights out. In all the sports... Journalism was in the thick of the process. A young journalist called Charles Alcott became secretary of the Football Association and in 1872 founded the FA Cup, the final of which was staged at the Oval, home of Surrey County Cricket Club, of which he happened to have the honour of being secretary. He was also the captain of the winning team, the Wanderers. 
quick bath and then he wrote the match reports. <laughs> Men like Alcott were ubiquitous in Victorian sport. Above all, there was the extraordinary C.B. Fry, journalist, cricketer, footballer, world long jump record holder, scholar, politician, eccentric, and alleged almost King of Albania. In old age, he told a friend in his London club that he was thinking of going to horse racing. What as, Charles, came the reply. <laughs> Owner, trainer, jockey or horse. As journalists, these men were hardly unbiased observers. They also tended to write in a style best described as Class A wimbaggery. Even so, newspapers were at the forefront of the huge changes that were taking place within sport itself towards the end of the 19th century. Sports were becoming formalised, acquiring their own ethos, cultures, guiding myths and heroes. Captain Webb, the channel swimmer, W.G. Grace, who rivaled Mr. Gladstone as the most famous man in the country. Cricket in particular was a media creation. Newspapers, not the MCC created the concepts of the county championship, test matches and the Ashes. It was the press, led by Alcock, that made the FA Cup seem important and turned races like the Derby into big betting events. Meanwhile, each sport was also making its own reckoning with the British class system. Horse racing developed into the, a peculiar coalition between the rural upper classes and the urban working class, more or less excluding the hard-working bourgeoisie who shuddered at the immorality of gambling and still, to some extent, do. Cricket included all classes but was split arbitrarily between the gentlemen who either could afford not to be paid or pretended not to be paid and the players, the professionals. They had different dressing rooms and often different gates to use onto the field. A gentleman was almost invariably the captain, however useless he might be, and gentlemen had their initials before their surnames, the players afterwards. This led to a famous announcement at Lord's in the 1950s. There is a change to your scorecard today. In the Middlesex team, delete FJ Titmus. Insert Titmus FJ. And this system lasted until 1962. Rugby split in two in 1895 because the players in the northern industrial towns couldn't afford to take the time off work that top-level amateur rugby required. And even now, rugby league's strength lies in those smaller towns of the north whose very names still conjure up to those of us of a certain age the voice of the late Eddie Waring. A witness... Warrington Castleford. Association football might also have split between toffs and plebs, but the balance of power was very different. For, the f for its first 11 years, the FA Cup was won by impeccable amateur teams, Wanderers, Old Etonians, Oxford University. But they were becoming pressured from teams based in what was becoming the sports heartland, the Lancashire Mill Towns. There, clubs with backing from the local press and local businessmen were starting to pay their players and even to import them, often from Scotland. In year 11 of the FA Cup, 1882, a northern club, Blackburn Rovers, reached the final for the first time, but lost to the Old Etonians. 
A year later, the OEs had to face Rovers' local rivals, Blackburn Olympic. In May 1883, the following appeared in the Eton College Chronicle. So great was Olympic's ambition to wrest the cup from the holders that they introduced into football play a practice that has excited the greatest disapprobation in the South. For three weeks before the final, they went into a strict course of training. (laughs) Spending, so report says, a considerable time at Blackpool and some days at Bournemouth and Richmond. Result, Old Etonians 1, Blackburn Olympic 2. No amateur club would ever win the FA Cup again. The Football League began six years later without a single team from south of Birmingham. The spread of football is often put down to muscular Christians from the public schools spreading out into industrial England as teachers and vicars. I think this theory gives the working class too little credit for working out their own destiny. It is not, after all, a complicated game. And football's popularity was stimulated massively by big specialist papers like the Sporting Life, the local Greenans and Pinkans, the Saturday sports editions of the evening papers, and publications like the Boys' Own Paper, another sports writing cliche, which was published by the Religious Tract Society and thus the very embodiment of muscular Christianity. One element was missing, a national popular press. The curious notion took hold that a certain levity and lowliness was permissible in the evening papers, which are always local, and in the Sunday papers. But the morning, the other mornings, were time for sober respectability. And this notion lasted long after it ceased to be true, which is why as late as 1936, George V's doctors engineered events to ensure that he would die at the right time for the morning papers rather than the evenings, who they feared would be insufficiently respectful to his majesty. They were 40 years behind the time. But not as far behind the times as Fleet Street itself was on the 4th of May 1896, when the Daily Chronicle, which claimed the largest circulation in London, not a lot though, published 22 leading articles, 22 leading articles, the longest of them 1,500 words about a professorial magazine article on public taste. A year earlier, on the day W.G. Grace had become the first cricketer to score 100 centuries, the Chronicle began the first of its mere 12 leaders that day with the question, is it not time that there should be a distinct progress of Afklar Rung within the Liberal Party. One of the leaders did concern W.G. Grace, but it was some way behind the welcome given to de Goncourt's diaries, volume 8. On May 4, 1896, newspapers changed forever, unknown to the verbose dolts at the Daily Chronicle. Alfred Harmsworth, later Lord Northcliffe, brought out the first edition of the Daily Mail, cost a halfpenny, not the cost customary penny. Within three years it was selling 600,000 copies every day and during the more dramatic phases of the Boer War more than a million, far in advance of anything ever before. 
we all moan about the excesses of the popular press. Well, perhaps not during a lecture sponsored by News International. Um, and the mail, like its owner, was nasty, obsessive and vindictive. You might think that it hasn't changed. But Harmsworth understood that a popular newspaper had to address the concerns of the people of Britain and not just those who might want to know about de Goncourt's diary, volume 8. He understood that there was another half of the population, the female half, that papers like the Chronicle had so far never bothered to address. He understood the importance of sport in the lives of his potential readership, and he understood that journalists needed to communicate in clear, plain English and not mumble in polysyllables. Within a few years, the Mail had been joined by new papers like the Express and the Mirror, and even old lags like the Chronicle had started to shape up, and the morning newspaper became a form of mass communication that would last into the 21st century, if not, I fear, for much longer. But for the first quarter of the 20th century, it would be the dominant form of communication, and crowds of football matches tripled between 1895 and 1905, which was not a coincidence. The excesses of football were already to starting to alarm Bien pensant de Goncourt reading opinion, as they would evermore. But the popular press was now starting to reflect the feelings of the people, the upmarket press rather less so. In 1901, more than 110,000 people descended on Crystal Palace for the FA Cup final between Sheffield United and Tottenham Hotspur, then still a non-league club. The result was a two-all draw, although the Times had no doubt what should have happened. There was a pretty general opinion among the best critics that victory should have gone to Tottenham. This was probably not the opinion of the 75,000 who came down on 75 special trains from Sheffield, a number that compares incidentally to only 700 who came down to follow Blackburn Olympic 18 years earlier. The game was becoming huge. Uh, in fact, Tottenham did win the replay uh, and were soon facing the Northern clubs in the highest echelon of the league. But the amateur game that the Times relished was in full retreat, and so was the elegant and blameless football, C.B. Fry's phrase, associated particularly with Corinthian FC, who disdained such fripperies as fouling, penalty kicks, and, heaven forfend, training. They literally arrived at a game of sporting top hats and canes, said one football historian, while their opponents wore cloth caps. In the 1880s, the Corinthians were typical of the game's founding fathers. By 1914, they were utterly exceptional, toffs in a world taken over by the plebs. If we go back to the question I posed last week about who controls sport, the initial answer not just domestically but internationally, was the British upper class. In cricket and rugby union, that would remain true until very recent times, even into the 1990s. In football, that era vanished much earlier. The upper class would lead the plebs into one last great game, which lasted four years. There were numerous incidents of footballs and rugby balls being kicked over the top into no-man's land to begin attacks in the First World War. 
most famously on the 1st of July 1916 at the opening of the First Battle of the Somme, Captain Billy Neville of the 8th East Surrey Regiment led his men towards the Montauban Ridge, dribbling four footballs. He had promised a reward to the platoon that was first to score in the enemy trenches. He was not available to present the trophy. In the aftermath of war, there was some movement away from football, which had tried to ignore the war and carried on as normal throughout the first winter 1914-15, towards rugby, which was seen as more patriotic. But this does seem to have been confined to the public schools. It didn't affect the estimated 200,000 that tried to get into the first Wembley Cup final in 1923. It didn't affect the countless thousands of kids, especially in the north, who saw professional football as a way to escape from either drudgery or unemployment. And every sport was about to receive an impetus from a once unimaginable technology, and I wonder if this technology is going to work. <coughs> we have the possible the ball was sent over from the city to Jones, was banked down the field to McLean, a clever tackle by Brown and McLean is beaten, from Brown the ball is found to Kelly, Five, then from Kelly over to Smith, it's a goal to Blackburn Rovers, well under a minute.
I hope the sun shines for you always. Goodbye. Um, actually, um, I owe you, um, I think, an apology for a mistake earlier. I referred to Blackburn Rovers. Well, that should, of course, be Blackburn Rovers. <laughs> I now realise. <laughs> the first radio sports commentary... Oops, hang on. No, we don't want that. Go away. That's next week. The <laughs> uh, first radio sports commentary was broadcast in the US in, the 19, in 1920. And on the night of May the 11th, 1922, my father, aged 10, sat up in bed in Cricklewood, I think it was, uh, and listened on his primeval cat's whisker wireless to the big fight between Georges Carpentier of France and Ted Kidd Lewis. Next morning, the Daily Express, then on its way to replacing the Mail as the top-selling newspaper, claimed the credit for this in a banner front-page headline, How We Broadcasted the News. The Express had even signed up the world heavyweight champ, Jack Dempsey, to describe proceedings. The fact that the fight was a fiasco, Lewis was knocked out in the first round, was a minor detail in the Express report. The Express was not just excited. A wonderful and romantic new era. Ships on the ocean from Liverpool to New York. Lonely farmers from Sutherland to Czechoslovakia. Men and women far beyond even the long arm of newspapers heard the story of the fight in Dempsey's own words long before they could receive even a bulletin of the result through the medium of printed paper. The Express was overexcited. It thought it was going to get a piece of the action of the new technology. In fact, the crude connection made by the Cat's Whisker Wire was about to exclude all the newspapers and their owners. Later that year, the British Broadcasting Company, which was a consortium of the big six manufacturers of wireless sets, was given a monopoly over British wireless transmissions under the control of the post office and employed a young Scottish engineer by the name of John Reith as its general manager. It had a staff of four. It grew. <laughs> Since this was a private monopoly, the press was given some right of veto over what it did to guard against unfair competition. And the newspaper owners used that veto to ensure that the BBC couldn't broadcast any news or live events before 7 p.m. <coughs> In 1925, Reith applied to be allowed to broadcast what were called coded narratives of the boat race and cup final. He failed. The BBC was allowed to go to the derby, but only to broadcast the noise of the crowd and the sound of the hooves. However, the general strike of 1926, which stopped the newspapers and established the BBC as a reliable source of news, gave Reith more leverage. And when the company mutated into the publicly owned British Broadcasting Corporation in 1927, the press barons had to give way. On January the 15th, 1927, the England-Wales rugby match was broadcast with Commander Teddy Wakelam, formerly of Harlequins, describing the contest from a hut on the, in the corner of the ground. A daring experiment, said the Express, 52,000 saw the match, a million others must have heard it. Heard, interestingly, in quotes in the paper. Three days after that match, the Cambridge Union debated the motion 
that the listening in habit is a menace to the sanity of England. <laughs> Mr. R. E. Stevenson, who proposed the motion with a, foul, with a five valve receiving set staring him straight in the face, said, Wireless is a stratagem for monstrous national inactivity. Instead of going to good concerts or, go, or to the university, people turn on the wireless. Mr. Gerald Sparrow, opposing, said, Broadcasting is a recreation for the wife, a retreat for the husband, and a solace for the spinster. Voting, 39 for the motion, 213 against. Motion defeated. And defeated not just in the Cambridge Union. That rugby broadcast was a huge success. Wakeland became one of the stars of the interwar BBC, and that year a whole range of other sporting events, the boat race, the Grand National, Wimbledon, received similar treatment under the driving hands of the head of outside broadcast, Gerald Cott. Oh, name again. Three things may not be obvious from this distance. Firstly, there was never any certainty that the BBC would develop in the way it did. British radio might easily have become a, an American-style commercial free-for-all, and there was certainly political discussion in the 1920s about having two competing operations. And the style it adopted only came about because men like Reith, Cock, Cock and Wakeland gave it that style. The BBC might easily have regarded sport as a trivial distraction from its mission to give the nation concerts and uplifting talks. The Goncourt's diaries. It didn't. And in the, in the early days, the, the very nature of commentary was still unsettled. For the early football matches, the BBC divided the field into numbered sectors with a plan in the Radio Times. And it, it, that might have been the sort of mysterious sounds you were hearing on the opening clip of the voice in the background giving the numbers of the, of, of, of the squares that the players had moved into. One commentator described the play, the other one described, called out the numbers, and hence, allegedly, the phrase, back to square one. Uh, nor was it even certain who should commentate. One listener suggested a simple answer, let the referee do it. A microphone could be strapped to his chest with an elastic lead attached to one of the goalposts. <laughs> yes, everybody laughed then, but of course something very like this happens in rugby rushes nowadays. The, the style of the commentators who did emerge gave the BBC its distinctive tone. Beckford Rovers. They were overwhelmingly Oxbridge men, authoritative on their sports, conservative in their outlook, patrician in their speech patterns dedicated to the amateur tradition of sport. The second point that's easy to forget about radio, about wireless rather, was the terrifyingly primitive nature of the technology. Robert Wood was the sound engineer for that first rugby match and at many of the great events of the era. Of the era. In fact, that is the character you might have glimpsed setting up George VI broadcast uh, towards the end of the King's Speech. Wood told graphically of the horrors of broadcasting, for example, the boat race. Crouching low in a launch, buffeted by the waves and weather, 
using an aerial that had to be lowered under every bridge without a clue whether anyone was hearing a damn thing unless he could glimpse the man somewhere in the crowd who was waving a handkerchief to tell him it was okay. The third point concerns just how much this wonderful and romantic new era meant to the listener. In 1928, there was a letter to the Radio Times, and it's one I find immensely affecting. Many of your readers must be office workers. They must know what sort of a life is that of a clerk in a provincial city. A tram ride to the office, lunch in a tea shop or saloon bar, a tram ride home. You don't spend much on amusements, the pictures and that, because you've got your holidays to think of. We have no trade unions and we don't grumble, but it's not an easy life. Please don't think I'm complaining. I'm only writing to say how much wireless means to me and to thousands of the same sort. It is a real magic carpet. Before, it was a fortnight at Rill, and that was all the travelling I did that wasn't on a tram. Now I hear the boat race in the Derby, and the opening of the Menai Bridge. There are football matches some Saturdays, and talks by famous men and women who have travelled and can tell us about places. Recreation for the wife, retreat for the husband, and solace for the spinster. It wasn't just a smart-ass Cambridge Union aphorism. The newspaper's ability to thwart the BBC diminished drastically in the 1930s, but there was a new enemy, and we began to see the battle lines being drawn for the contest that will dominate the relationship between broadcasting and sport for the rest of this history, the rights. At first, the BBC took the line that it was doing the sports a favour by turning up, forming a public service. The press was allowed in free. Why not the BBC? On that basis, it won an early skirmish with the Football Association over the 1930 Cup final. But in football, a pattern emerged that was to last right until the age of satellite TV. The Football League, which then represented all the clubs from the Arsenal's right down to the York cities, was vehemently opposed to having their matches broadcast. The FA, which ran the Cup, was more accommodating. There was a good reason for this, because it soon became clear to those who were listening carefully that radio stimulated interest in the major events just as the newspapers did. And far from diminishing attendance, it increased it. But if a big match was on the wireless or even more so in the years to come, the television, it was far less likely that anyone would go along to see Tranmere Rovers play Stockport County. Arsenal was the first club to see how, as a highly successful club, at that time the most successful of all, the top technology could actually work to their advantage. Their manager, Herbert Chapman, had a flair for publicity, hence his unique stunt of persuading London Transport to rename boring old Gillespie Road Station on the Piccadilly line after the football club it served. Chapman, in fact the tube station's still there after the football club's left. Uh, Chapman also welcomed the newsreel cameras. For though wireless was the most exciting medium of the 1930s, the world of the monopolistic BBC was serene in 
comparison to what was going on elsewhere. This was an absolutely ferocious era of competition among the popular press. Uh, never have the papers been as raucous and as brawling and, and as dishonest as they were in the 30s. Radio certainly hadn't hurt their business because circulations were up 80% on 1914. And the advent of the talkies had produced a huge boom <coughs> in the number of companies producing cinema newsreels. Pathé Gazette, British Movie Tone News and so on. And competition between them was intense. The sports administrators were very aware of the value of cinema rights. They could tell by the desperation of the companies. In 1934, Movietone and Gaumont British were given joint rights to the Oval Test against Australia. One of their rivals, Paramount, tried to get shots from a tower outside the ground. A large gas-filled balloon was raised to block Paramount's view. Meanwhile, Pathé had exclusive rights to the Grand National, and their team at the race included several heavies hired to see off the opposition. In 1934, they discovered movie cameras hidden inside bags of fruit, a chauffeur's luncheon basket, a bookie's satchel, a steam-powered excavator, and a coal barge at the canal turn. The film, when they could get it, wouldn't be shown for several days. And that technological barrier was about to be bust wide open by another new invention. Uh, but that is next week's thrilling instalment. Thank you very much for your time. <laughs>